You are listening to The Depression Session at 99.1 FM Downtown Radio. Each week, we'll have a new guest tell the story of their depression. I'm your host, Laura Milkins, and thank you for joining us on The Depression Session. Just a note for my listeners, I want to make sure you understand that this is a show about depression, and some of the content can be triggering, so please take care of yourself if something on the show brings up difficult feelings, and seek professional help if you need it. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the Depression Session on Downtown Radio. Today we have with us in the studio Ray. Ray is an artist and writer, and presently in seminary at Pacific School of Religion. We'll be right back with Ray. But first, let's talk about judgment. So, this is hard and wonderful to do, but I I went to a workshop this weekend, and it was really helpful to think about my relationship with other people. And the main thing that I got out of it was that I think I'm not judging people because I'm not saying anything. Uh, Years ago, I realized that advice could be a subtle form of criticism, and it seemed unkind. It was like, hey, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Which is a subtle form of saying, you're screwed up, and I know how to fix it, (laughs) which is not all that helpful and not very nice. So I decided that I want to look at where some of the judgment's coming from, that just because I'm not giving advice, just because I'm being quiet, it allows me to sit there and feel superior because I'm not being judgmental. And because I'm thinking like, well, they could just do this and fix it, but you know, I'm going to listen to them anyway. And that's not cool. I don't want to be a person sitting quietly in judgment on my friends and my family. And so I actually called up my mom and told her that I had been dismissive and unkind. When I looked at judgment in my life, it spread into all these different areas. It actually affects every one of my relationships. But the place that it goes back to is my mom. She was having a really tough time after my parents divorced and something awful happened to her. And I I didn't witness it, but I saw her afterward and I looked at her and I thought in my head, I will never be like you. I think you're weak and you're in a terrible situation because you're weak and I'm not going to be weak and I'm not going to be like you. So I called my mom up and told her that and said that it wasn't true and that what happened to her didn't happen to me. And I made it about me and I made a whole life out of it, a whole life of I'm strong, I'm capable, and I'm not like you. And I apologized and said, you're the strongest person I know. You went through two tough marriages and some unkind things in your family of you know judgment that you felt from other people and things that people said, and that you got through all of that and remained kind and sweet and generous and an awesome mom. And I don't want to judge you. I want to sit here and look at you and appreciate you for who you are, because judgment is really, when I look at it in my life, every judgment I have is a judgment about myself. So I've been practicing this week since I had this little revelation and called my mom. Oh, and I I said, I want to see you. I'm going to fly you to Tucson. And she said, when? I said, you want to come tomorrow? And she said, really? (laughs) I said, why not? And she did. She got on a plane and she flew to Tucson. It was amazing. And we're having a really nice time. I wanted a do-over because I feel like I wasn't very nice to her last year. I was in a hurry. I was too busy. And I was dismissive. And it all comes from this feeling that's not true, that came out of something that happened 30 years ago. So 
I was looking at all the, you know, kind of at my thoughts and listening into myself where I would say, this person isn't doing this right. Oh, they don't have their act together. Why are they whining? Why can't they get over themselves? These little things that I wouldn't say to them because it's mean. And I think I'm not judging. And I'm like, nope, still judging. <laughs> and instead, I, I turned it around and I said, I feel controlling. I feel hurried. I feel, you know, like looking at myself and looking at how if I'm judging someone else for being incompetent, I'm afraid of being incompetent. That's all that's about. And taking that point of view is, it's like incredibly liberating. You know, I feel good. I feel the least depressed that I have in four years. The other thing I realized is that when my dad died, I told myself no one would ever love me like that. That my dad was the kind of guy who would visit me in prison if I'd killed people. And then I believed it. I lived my life in a way that no one loved me and I was alone on the planet and I stopped calling my friends back and I stopped feeling close to people and I started dismissing their love and interest and affection because clearly I'm unlovable and I'm alone on the planet. And what I did in, in this weekend was look at it and say, oh my God, I have friends that would definitely visit me in prison if I killed people. In fact, they'd start art programs and try to do some some interesting things with the prison system. Like, So I called those friends up and said, I love you, and I've been dismissing your love. And I cried a lot, actually. I called my cousin and said, I judge you. I've been judging you for years, and I don't want to do that. You're beautiful. You're awesome. And all it's hurting is me. And you know, it sounds kind of silly. It's like I go to a workshop and I have this big revelation, but I'd like to keep some of that stuff. I'd like to really keep looking at my life with a, with a more fresh eye. If when, when those thoughts come up, then it's just a judgment on me. It's not about anybody else. So I'll just end with a quote here from Abram Hicks. People will love you. People will hate you. And none of it will have anything to do with you. Today we have with us in the studio, Ray. Ray is an artist and writer and presently in seminary at Pacific School of Religion. Hello, Ray. Welcome to the Depression Session. Hi. Thanks. Thanks for coming. I just wanted to thank you for coming to the studio. And what's new with you? What's going on in your life? Well, currently I'm home in Tucson for the summer after having spent a year at seminary in Berkeley, which was not anything I thought I would be doing with my life. (laughs) But it's been a really... A humongous learning experience, and I feel very privileged to have to be having this this time, having this time and space in your life to do this. Yeah, that's how I felt about going to France this summer. Mm. I was away for a month, and I was just like, "This is so self indulgent and wonderful, <laughs> and good for me, mm-hmm. and wonderful." <laughs> Seminary definitely has that feel to it, and I'm not going to be a minister. That's not what I'm there for. It's a new degree program, at least to this seminary. There's other seminary. There's at least one other seminary that has something similar, which is around it's around social justice work and around having people be grounded in their spiritual practices, whatever those are, in order to do that kind of work in the world. I've spent a lot of this year learning a lot about racism, which is not what I thought I would be doing necessarily. On top of really sort of digging into what my spirituality, what, what my path is, what it's meant in its sort of varied forms up to this point and also like what it's now turning into in a very new way and how that fits with everything else I've done in my life. Like all the pieces come together a little bit. Yeah, which is what I was hoping for, but it's 
it's one of those things where, you know, you get ideas about what you think that's supposed to look like. And then it does a 180 and it's all like, wait, what did I just do? Because <laughs> the seminary that I'm going to is like super progressive and it's Christian based. And most of the people who teach there are ordained ministers in one, one or another Christian denominations. But there's a bunch of us there who aren't. So you're not and, alone in this. <laughs> no, which is good. And uh, and I also like didn't know what to expect from it and really just sort of had the opportunity to let go of a lot of judgment that I had around myself for not fulfilling that path that I was supposed to fulfill as a kid and realizing that my spirituality grows, evolves, changes, and all those things, and that it's okay that I practiced as a Christian for the first 22 years of my life and that's not where I am now. And it's weird to go to seminary and go, oh, I'm not supposed to be a Christian. Good to know. <laughs> that, that, I wonder how many people have that, that, that feeling. Well, I don't know. Like, it's very interesting. It seems really it, unique to go to seminary and go, nope, not a Christian, but still spiritual. Yeah. But it's also nice to know that there's like ways to show up to people who want to make change within that system mm. as an ally, as someone who isn't. Which it was not anything I had even vaguely pondered. I was too busy being mad about judgment and the way that Christianity gets used in our society. So I was like, oh, oh wait, there's a whole other way to be. Good to know. So, Ray, tell us the story of your depression. Mm. So, <laughs> I'm a 12-step person. So, automatically, when you say tell your story, all I can think of is the little model, which is like, how it was... What changed and what it's like now. So I'm going to try to do a little of that. I hope that that's a good will model. Be okay. It's been used for many a decade. Yeah, it's true. So it's interesting because depression and anxiety run in my family, and I I realized that I've spent a lot of time in my life trying to sort out situational versus chemical versus blah blah, blah. and I don't know that it actually even matters because the bottom line is that depression is a real thing regardless of its most basic impetus. So it's interesting that we're talking about judgment because I feel like judgment definitely plays a gigantic part in what it means for me to be depressed and also what it means for me to be anxious. And I can't, I can't talk about one without the other because they feel each other. And I've had anxiety for as long as I can remember. <laughs> and my mom has some mental illness and has definitely had a very chronic depression probably all of her life, I would guess. I don't know tons about the rest of my family sort of that regard, but like it's definitely it's definitely around and about. In my dad's family, we're a whole anxious lot. <laughs> That's definitely <laughs> something that all of us share. <laughs> so I say the thing about chemical versus situational because I because there are circumstances, and also I don't know where they sort of overlap. As somebody who identifies as trans, and who started having experiences of being very different than their peers from very young, depression was very in my face from a very young time. And I also have an eating disorder, which also started very early for me. So those two things in conjunction with each other, I don't know if they cause depression, if they have depression as part of them, or if it was already there, and then those things exacerbate the depression itself or just how it all fits together but it's definitely all interrelated and intertwined and so I was I sort of think of myself as being a fairly happy kid until I changed school when I was in the third grade and then that was kind of where the depression stuff really that word entered into my vocabulary and I knew that it applied to me because I experienced a lot of bullying and a lot of 
and also a lot of chronic illness in my family, not me, but other people in my family. And so things were kind of bumpy. <laughs> and that's also the point at which my eating disorder really kicked in too. So it kind of all hit at the same time. And yeah, so I, like for a lot of people, suicidal stuff enters into me and what it means to be depressed. And so the first time I tried to kill myself, I think it was in the fourth grade. Nobody knew about it. <laughs> I managed to hide it because I freaked myself out so bad. And I was like, this is, and I remember thinking at one point, I'm like, do fourth graders do this? <laughs> is this normal? Do fourth graders do this? <laughs> and I, I think the answer is probably no, but I don't know. I figured there's probably a fair number of us that at least had that thought at that age. In working with the trans community as an activist and those kinds of things, it's it's interesting to hear what the, the differences are in what happens for the average population versus folks who identify as trans, which is, I think the stats are like suicidal, suicide attempts are like 1.3% of the population. We're in a trans community. If you're white, it's like 45%. If you're African American, it's like 50%. If you're native, it's like 60%. People of color have added compounded things that I don't have. And therefore that also triggers those things, which is also spent a lot of time thinking about that this past year in seminary. And I am not saying all that to say that my like childhood was like a dramatically terrible or anything. I think there's a lot of things about the way that I grew up that was like totally utterly normal for whatever the heck that means for people. Part of what I, I recognize is that my loud judge internal judgment self started really early. And that, that whole I'm not good enough thing fuels so many things in terms of anxiety and depression and those things. And I think it definitely, I don't know where one ends and one begins, honestly, <laughs> around that stuff. I know that now that I'm on anxiety medication that works, that my depression is a lot less. And I've never taken anything that worked until two years ago. To do the, the whole what it was like. Yeah, I, I definitely have spent time in my life where I was like on my butt for weeks at a time and didn't leave house and ate too much and watched a lot of TV and what those things can look like. I definitely have been a pretty functional depressed person because I could certainly go teach and no one knew the difference when I used to travel and teach. I went to class as a grad student and did my best to hide those kinds of things too, like several times over, same thing as an undergrad, like... But it would hit cycles where I just couldn't put one foot in front of the other. Thankfully, when I was living in Georgia, I found a, a good therapist who was very understanding. But poor woman, she did a lot of crisis management. <laughs> Especially when all of my like, oh, I think I need to transition. And oh, I don't know what this means. And oh, I don't have any resources. Kind of all hit the fan at once. She was doing more crisis management than anything else. And I tried two or three different kinds of anxiety meds that didn't do squat. Prozac was totally useless. They put me on this stuff that I, it's interesting because this is the second time around I've been on something that actually is for epilepsy. The first time, all it did was like give me weird side effects, like my face would tingle and do all these things that scared me and <laughs> that was it. And I can't say that it did anything for my depression whatsoever. And then I, then I was sort of gun shy about medications for a while, but I had, such, I had a good experience in therapy and so I was like willing to at least stick with that. I definitely had to do some therapist shopping along the way. For me, it was been, it's been really useful. That There have been times when I've been really, really low that like being able to go to therapy and go, Ugh, when I wouldn't say it to anybody else, certainly helped me to be able to function at least and do what I need to do and be out in the world. And also to have validation. It's like, you know what? You feel this way and it's okay for you to feel this way too. That that's actually a valid feeling 
which was new because people, I feel like people do things to folks with depression in the same way they do with chronic illness. Well, if you would just exercise more, or if you would just eat the so-and-so thing, or if you would become a vegan, or like whatever it is, or like consult this astrologist, or like, you know, any number of whatever things. And when you live in Georgia, they're like, you just go to church more. You know, all that. And I tried to go to church more. That did not help my depression. If anything, it was in some ways a reinforcement of of that, because it was like, I knew that I identified in a way that my church would kick me to the curb if they knew. And so it was like just sort of hanging around waiting for either Jesus to fix it or the other shoe to fall. And so then I just bailed, which is why it's really interesting for me to be in seminary at this point in my life. (laughs) I think the what changed thing, there's several things that changed for me. One is that I started in 12-step programs six years ago now. Doing the step work made a humongous difference understanding the way that resentment works and how it fuels those things that I said to myself that were, and I, and I had my, one of my sponsors, I'm in, I'm in two 12 step programs and I'll just be honest about what they are. I'm in Reader's Anonymous and I'm in uh, Al-Anon and my Al-Anon sponsor said to me at one point, he's like, you know, those old tapes that you have in your head at some point, at one point they came from someone else, but at some point they became your own voice. And I was like, seriously, dude, why are you telling me that? <laughs> Because then I can't blame anybody else for that. Oh, but he was right. <laughs> and it took me a long time mulling that over to figure out how that even, like how, how that applied. But some of that for me is, as an artist, it's really not useful to tell yourself that you don't have talent and you <laughs> it's not okay to use what you have, what skill set you have. You know, those kinds of things. It doesn't, it doesn't work to tell yourself those things. And sometimes you need help not to tell yourself those things. And I certainly needed help to not do that. 12-step was a, was a huge life changer for me in that way. And I know that's not everybody's way necessarily, but like that was a big step towards self-acceptance, which is a big, it's been a big chunk of the, the le- much lessening of depression that I have in my life now. And with change, I get kind of rocky. Like it's always like, Oh, what's going to happen. And I definitely had some days during seminary, where I was like, I don't want to get out of bed, I don't want to do these things, but they pass much faster than I used to. And I started taking Vibrid two years ago for my anxiety. And one of the things that happened was that I realized one day that there was, it was quiet in my head. And it had never been quiet in my head ever. It was always racket, and mostly it was terrible things I was saying to myself all the time. And all of that stopped. And it was like, oh. And it made me better cap- better able of like dealing with those things when they come up. And I'm still learning how to do that, but it certainly makes a huge difference. And I know medication doesn't work for everybody, but it certainly was a, has been a lifesaver for me because I wouldn't be in seminary because I wouldn't have trusted my gut or my higher power or any of these things that I've had to do in order to make leaps and go on faith because I'd be too busy telling myself I'm not good enough. It's nice to be able to um, to be on the other side, or at least at this point in my life, and be like, there are hopeful spaces, and I learned things from the experiences that I've had. Because I also think about the current state of affairs and the level of judgment that's happening in our political system and about movements and things that need to change and how much depression that generates for people who are being oppressed by our systemic things in our culture, like racism and transphobia and homophobia and all of those things. And that it also tells me that there's ways for us to show up and change that stuff. So that people don't have to like have those experiences and we don't have to perpetuate those things in our families, in our own heads and with people we don't necessarily even know. That's great, right? Like that's, 
one of the things I really wanted to bring up there is the bullying. Because I feel like depression is so much about isolation. Yeah. When you're a kid, that that being the different kid, <laughs> which I was for no reason, really. <laughs> Just being me made me different. Mm-hmm. And maybe every kid feels like that. Yeah. But some kids have it harder. Because well, they're they're bullied on top of feeling different. Like other people are saying what they're thinking in their head mm-hmm. until it sounds like their voice. I really yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> I really like that idea that you have of looking at the places where we judge ourselves and then letting those voices that came from someone else recognizing how they aren't. Yeah. Well, I think it's like the space where we figure out how to find empathy for other people that we perceive to be on the other side of whatever issue we're on i mean honestly as much as donald trump makes me want to freak out i think he must be the most frightened person in all of the united states i think that's why he's in the position that he's in is because he's terrified yeah and part of what i feel like sometimes they just want to be like are you okay dude like can i talk to you like seriously (laughs) do you need somebody to talk to and not just to shout at i realize that there's so much fear in our whole country yeah and people just fall into that space there's privilege where people get to ignore it but there's also a tremendous amount of fear even in those spaces even the most privileged people yeah and the only way i feel like in some ways the only way we're going to find any kind of middle ground is to acknowledge the fear on both sides and find a space to talk to each other and realize that that's where our humanity is find the elephant in the room and the blind spot you're working from yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) when it comes to politics i've gotten to the point where i just feel like Every single country is moving into a space of fear that makes me actually start to get worried when I look at the elections that are happening in a lot of places, Brexit being, you know, Mm -hmm. turned on it. So they're not going to be part of the European Union anymore. England has moved themselves from Europe. And one of the women who was at the retreat I was at in France was from England. And she said, Scotland all voted to stay. London all voted to stay. Everybody out in the countryside where they're having really hard economic times voted to leave because they're like, it's you, it's the European Union, you're causing this. And I think our politics operates on fear on both sides, not just Donald Trump, on both sides. The thing that sells is fear. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to work from a place of fear, we're not going to get a whole lot done. Right. Well, and it's interesting because one of the one of the things that I did at seminary is I took a class on Howard Thurman. I sort of knew who he was. I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't know more than I knew. I don't know. How He's that. a tremendous theologian. He was pretty much the chaplain to people like Martin Luther King and other folks working in the civil rights movement. He wrote a ton of books, but one of them is called Luminous Darkness. And he talks in that book, he actually like gives this sort of beautifully simple explanation of what segregation meant and how the history of slavery relates to segregation and how that played out post-segregation and all of that. And as a white person growing up in the South post-integration, I realized, one, that there's such an incredible generation gap between me and my mom and dad. Like, no wonder when I was having conversations with them about why can't my black friends come over, they didn't even know what I was talking about. Because I went to desegregated schools and they didn't, not even college. And one of the things that he talks about in those kinds of terms is this, is how much fear gets built into the system. That like, that's how it works is fear. But it's also about that 
African-American people were segregated and white people were separated. And that there's a really important distinction there because white people can come and go as they, as they please where African-American people had only their single space. And those spaces were very much dictated by what white culture said was okay for them. And so when these cro- when the cro- when white people would cross into African American people's spaces, they would fi- the white folks would feel unsafe. But you know you're really actually taking it you're really really crossing into somebody else's space too and making them feel unsafe too. So there's this extra layer of fear just in that difference, and that because white folks were afraid, they could then intentionally cross into African American people's spaces and do harm. I'd never had anybody explain that to me, but it made so much sense about the way, even just geographically, segregation lays out in our country, even now. Yeah. And not just in the South, but everywhere. It was really like, oh. And it also was like the religious difference was pretty amazing because Howard Thurman talks about the religion of Jesus versus Christianity. Christianity is a white thing. The religious of Je- the religion of Jesus is something different because it talks about he's they're really embracing historical Jesus as a person of color who was oppressed by empire, who was crucified by empire. And when you take that person as the person that is your savior, it's a little different than than the sort of the like whitewashed version. The Renaissance version of Jesus. Yeah. I actually had a thought recently. I was at the Louvre and I was looking at all the paintings of Jesus. There's mm-hmm. a lot of them. And he's in, all, everyone's in the garb of the day. I'm like, does anybody do that these days? Like do a painting of Jesus where everybody's in the garb of the day. What would Jesus look like if we did a today version of American culture version of Jesus and people in the clothing of today? And I just thought that would be really interesting. I've been thinking about it ever since then. And the only thing that's really important in that is the idea that we create a version of that story that works for what we want to say and can can address like such narrow concerns actually <laughs> you know and I, i've been thinking a lot about just in general fanaticism like i'm a fanatic about being an artist but realizing that as soon as you say it's the one way you're you're wrong <laughs> because there's a million ways to have an experience of loved lived connected life mm-hmm. and a student of mine asked me yesterday, what do you think the purpose of life is? And I was like, I don't know that I have one. I'm not very goal oriented. (laughs) But when I really thought down to it, what I feel it is, it's to be. And that's kind of it. And she said her version was to love. Mm. And she saw it to somebody else who's like her meditation instructor. And he said to be present. Mm. But if you bring your life down to like one word, it's we can all find those things in so many different. There's probably 7.4 billion ways of finding your way to some sort of love, being, presentness. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I feel like we we talked about a lot of that in in class in classes that I'm in now too. And one of the things that I did the first semester I was in in seminaries to Google the word theology every five minutes because I kept thinking I, I just kept losing the grasp of what that word even meant. And so much of it is about thinking about not just what theology tells us to do and not just like this idea that there's like some sort of instruction that's going to come down to us and we're going to do that and everything's going to be hunky-dory, which I feel like is the way that one of the paths that gets given to us as religious consumers, if you're a religious consumer, 
when it's really, I spent a lot of time being encouraged to think about theology as like, where, where do you see God in, what does it tell you about God yourself? What does your body tell you about what God is? What does the person sitting next to you tell you about what God is? What does, what does the queer community tell straight people about what God is? What do African-American people tell white people about what God is? And that that's also like a lot, especially at PSR, like that's a lot of what progressive Christians there really look into mine in order to, to like really find empathy and create solidarity. Yeah. Rather than it being the one way, do it our way or you're yeah. wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and it, and that comes from that place of fear that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. And that come that creates that placement of judgment that I started with. Mm-hmm. If you're very busy seeing God and other people, you'll have a whole lot of time to be judging them for what they're not. Wow. Ray, thanks so much for being on the depression session. That's a beautiful way to close the show. Cool. Thanks for asking me. I want to mention again that if you found some of the content of today's episode triggering, please seek professional help and call 911 if you feel like hurting yourself or others. I'm not a licensed therapist, and this show and the station are not endorsing any remedies or products. The purpose of this show is to destigmatize depression through storytelling. You can find a link to mental health services on downtownradio.org on the About KTDT page. To listen to the podcast, or if you're interested in being on the show, contact us at www.thedepressionsession.com. You've been listening to The Depression Session on Downtown Radio Tucson with music by Septa Helix. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at The Depression Session Podcast. Thank you.